On this episode of Blue 58, another notable name is on his way out the door in Green Bay. This time we say goodbye to Clay Matthews. Then we address a listener question about why NFL salary data is so hard to figure out. I think there's a good reason, but it may surprise you. Plus, predicting who's going to end up on the roster when the Packers break training camp five months from now. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for one more episode, and then an episode after that, and then many more episodes. This is not the last episode. Not by a long shot. We will not be stopped. Just as I finished recording. Well, maybe not just as I finished recording, but just as I finished editing and processing and mixing down the last episode of Blue 58, news came that Clay Matthews would be signing with the Los Angeles Rams. I toyed very briefly with the idea of trying to jam something into the the episode that I had just finished, tacking something on the end. None of it felt right, and I couldn't figure out a way to really do justice to the subject, so I figured we would just talk about it on this particular episode. So that's why we're a couple days maybe behind the rest of the Packers community on this one, but I wanted to make sure we had a good discussion about that. I hope you will understand. He does sign with Los Angeles on an eminently understandable contract. I think I would have taken this contract too if I was in Clay Matthews' shoes, even if he doesn't necessarily want to move on from Green Bay. Maybe this contract looks a little bit worse a year from now. Maybe he's you know looking for another job a year from now. Who knows? That's really not the point of what I want to say here about Clay Matthews. I come not to bury Clay, but to praise him, if we can turn a phrase from Julius Caesar. I'm going to miss Clay Matthews. Uh, he was a fun player to watch. I think he was underrated. For a lot of the last few years, he played in Green Bay. But at the same time, I don't think I had the same emotional connection to him as I did to Randall Cobb. It's a lot tougher to look back on Clay Matthews' career and do the same thing that we did with Randall Cobb. He played longer in Green Bay, but we it, it's harder for me to do the top five Clay Matthews moments um, and, and have them like span a significant portion of my life and have them tied to significant moments in my life in part because of the way that Clay Matthews sh- uh, career kind of shaped out. He was almost unfathomably good early in his career. Came just a couple votes away from being defensive player of the year in 2010, the year the Packers won the Super Bowl. Just very very good. I don't need to tell you that. You know it, of course. But it was kind of a gradual decline from there. I'm not sure it's as steep a decline as some people would like you to think, but he dealt with a lot of injuries in there. He switched positions, essentially, for a year and a half, almost two full seasons in 2014 and 2015 out of necessity. And then, you know, he got old. And for a guy whose entire skill set seemed to be built around athleticism and explosion, that's a tough thing. So it was hard to come up with the same sort of big-time moments that you did for Randall Cobb. But there's another aspect to Clay Matthews that I think is interesting and unfortunate. Unfortunate for us, not unfortunate for him. I think Clay Matthews was a lot more guarded than Randall Cobb. There's a bigger public-private split with Clay Matthews than there was for Randall Cobb. He had a lot of funny commercials for sure, but he... I don't ever really get the sense that that was the real Clay Matthews. From everything that you hear out of Green Bay, he's a pretty introverted guy. 
likes to keep to himself, likes to work out a lot, likes to hang out with his wife and their kids. And that's fine, but I think we're losing out on that. And I wish that we could have gotten to see the guy behind the scenes. I wish we could have gotten to see a little bit more of that guy who helped the other young pass rushers out a lot. You hear a lot of stories about that. David Bakhtiari mentioned uh, on social media this week about how Clay Matthews helped him when he didn't have to. Even when David Bakhtiari was not even a part of the Packers, yet he, he worked with him a little bit. Those are all the things that I wish we could have seen more of, but he was just not interested in sharing it. And that's fine. It just feels like we missed out on something. His annual support for the Cure Duchenne stuff that he did, work with that charity during the My Cause, My Cleats stuff was awesome. I wish he could have talked about that more because I think that's a very unique cause. It's something that you almost hear nothing about the rest of the year, but he brought a lot of attention to that. And I wish we got to see more of that guy. That is, I guess, my regret of the Clay Matthews era. Not so much that there weren't those notable moments, because they were. I mean, you think about the biggest Clay Matthews stuff, the biggest highlights for me come from that 2010 season. All of the stuff he did that year, culminating with that big play in the Super Bowl, that's great. But there's an entirely different part of this guy that we didn't see a whole lot, and it's too bad that we didn't get to see him that much. So I'll miss Clay Matthews. Good for him getting what looks like to be a pretty good deal from the Rams. And I hope he gets every every bit of that 16 and a half or 16 and three quarters million dollars that this contract is supposedly worth. Good for him. Moving right along, we got a good question on the heels of our last episode where we talked a lot about the salary cap and how a lot of these numbers are kind of, uh, let's say voodoo. That was a, a, a number that, or a, a phrase that one of my professors in college used a lot to talk about ratings. Um, you know, coming from the broadcast world, ratings are a big deal. But ratings are kind of voodoo, he would always say, because you can kind of spin them any way you like, and you're not really sure where they came from anyway. NFL contract numbers are kind of a lot the same. And on our Facebook page, Rudy asks this question. In your opinion, why doesn't the NFL or the NFLPA make everything 100% transparent on the financial side? It seems like it would clear up a lot of confusion and help passionate fans be more intimately aware of team operations. I agree. Being more transparent with that stuff would make things a lot easier for your average fan, even your, your not-so-average fan. Anybody who wants to dive deep on this to understand. Right now, it takes some work to get the, the numbers, to see how all those things sort out. And even then, we're sort of guessing. Why doesn't the NFL or the NFL Players Association make everything a little bit more straightforward? One aspect of that is that they can't. And that's due to the nature of NFL contracts not being fully guaranteed. Things would immediately become a lot more clear if contracts were just guaranteed. And I've thought about trying to do an evaluation of contracts, just pretending like everything is guaranteed or only talking about guaranteed money. Like talking about this guy got X amount of dollars over guaranteed over four years or whatever. And just ranking players that way. Because that's the real money, right? But that's not how it works, unfortunately. So we have to dive a little bit deeper. And I think my answer here is this. I don't think the NFL, not the NFLPA, not the union, the NFL believes it is in its own best interest to not be completely transparent. And here's why. Think back to 2010. 
when we were working on the last collective bargaining agreement into 2011. The NFL and the NFL Players Association had one essential main goal in those negotiations. There was a big problem. It was rookie contracts, specifically first-round rookie contracts. There was a lot of money going to those rookies. They wanted to take that money and shift it to NFL veterans. Get rid of those rookie contracts and give that money to the vets. NFL veterans, not people who have fought in wars and stuff. You know what I mean. Now, in 2019, half of that has been accomplished. Rookies no longer get those big deals. In the 2010 NFL draft, Sam Bradford was the first overall pick. He signed a six-year, $78 million deal with $50 million guaranteed. In 2018, Baker Mayfield was the first overall pick in the draft, also a quarterback. He signed a four-year, $32.8 million deal with an option for a fifth year. A significant difference. The guaranteed money alone in Sam Bradford's contract dwarfs Baker Mayfield's deal. Sam Bradford is probably going to go down as one of close to the highest earning player in NFL history. He's right up there at the top, just in part because of the significant contract he got right out of the gate. So the NFL and the Players Association have done well there. That part of their goal has been accomplished. The second part, not so much. Because NFL teams have realized, you know what, we don't have to just take that money and give it to veterans. What we could do instead is just keep it and not give it to anyone. And we'll just rely on these younger and younger players to fill out our roster. And that's exactly what's happened. The NFL has just gotten younger and younger year over year as teams spend less and less on veterans. Between teams getting younger... And the ability to roll over the cap space that you have, you end up with an offseason like this one in which tons and tons of teams have just these giant war chests of money. And it's not really being distributed to NFL veterans. Now, related to this is the fact, as I mentioned up top, that a lot of NFL contracts are basically funny money. They're voodoo. Most of them more or less break down to two-year deals with year-to-year decisions after that. Look at all four of the contracts the Packers signed this offseason. If you look at how the cash flow breaks down, the Packers are going to have Zadarius Smith, Preston Smith, Adrian Amos, and Billy Turner all on the roster for two years, for sure. But then they've got decisions to make. Once the cap numbers really start going up and you start to have these guys really count against your cap, you've got to start to make decisions. And the contracts are structured where it's a lot less painful to get out of those contracts at that point. The real money for these deals is in the first two years. But why isn't it easier to see that? Well, let's get back to Rudy's question. I think the NFL wants to make this hard to understand or wants to allow it to continue to be hard to understand. That is not reporting the real money and going with the inflated number so when you say a contract like Zadarius Smith, for instance, is seven or four years, $52 million, it's not really that because the Packers are going to be making a decision in a couple of years. The NFL wants you to keep thinking of that contract as being worth $52 million because I think that helps keep up the perception that the NFL's middle class isn't shrinking and that veterans are still getting their money. 
Zadarius Smith is part of that NFL middle class. He's not a superstar, and he's not making superstar money. He's just a really well-paid, middle-of-the-road kind of player. But if there's a perception out there that these middle-of-the-road guys are getting paid, that works to the NFL's advantage. Because if the NFL can point at this contract and say, look, four years, $52 million, that's a a win in their book when it comes to the next collective bargaining uh, agreement negotiations. It's also a win for the NFL because fans see that same number and they say, look, these guys aren't underpaid. What are they fighting for when we have the next big collective bargaining agreement fight? And it's coming. It's coming. So if you've got two of the three people involved, the NFL and the fans, saying, hey, look, these guys are getting a lot of money, it puts a lot of pressure on the Players Association when they have their opportunity to really fight for more money. Because the NFL can use the fans as kind of a cudgel there and say, look, you're making all these people mad, these people who, in a way, kind of pay your salary, that whole silly argument. Well, whether it's silly or not doesn't really matter. You've got all these people who come to your games, watch you on TV, talk with you on social media. They're mad because you're just trying to squeeze some more money out of this. Just take what we're giving you and accept it. I don't think the NFL wants to change that. I don't think the NFL wants to make this easier to understand. And I think for that reason, we are going to have a big fight when this next CBA negotiation starts. It's coming. It's on the horizon. And I don't think it's a coincidence related to this that the Packers' contracts for each of these four guys really spike in 2021. That would be the first year of this new collective bargaining association uh, agreement. Excuse me. This next collective bargaining agreement. Things are going to be different when that document takes effect. And I bet the Packers are betting on there being a different financial landscape. With how much we're seeing TV rights go for in all of professional sports right now, I wouldn't be surprised if league executives are preparing for a big salary cap jump around 2021. And I bet the Packers are thinking about that too. But the reason that these contracts to land this plane that's taken a while to get to, or a a while to land here, to bring that all together, I think the NFL wants it to be hard to figure out because it's better for them selling their position in the long run. They can say that everybody's making all this money, even if it's not really the truth. Makes sense? That's one guy's opinion. Could be completely wrong, but I think there's something to that. Let's pivot completely and talk for a second about the Packers roster. It's my belief, even now, even before the draft, that most of this Packers roster is set. There is not a lot of really wiggle room for the Packers between now and training camp. Everybody signed the guys that they wanted in free agency. Everybody knows pretty well the kind of players they're going to be able to get in the draft. And even if they don't get the players they want, they're aware of the talent that's out there now. If you haven't made a move by now to really shore up some areas of your roster, they're probably not going to get shored up. There's only so much you can do. So who's it going to be on the Packers roster? Let's take a quick look at that, at this and see how things sort out a few months from now. We're going to look at two of the roster categories that I like to talk to talk about um, when it comes to breaking down who's got a shot on the roster. 
the locks and the good bets. Locks are obvious. It's the guys who's, who are, are going to be on the roster. Barring something unusual, they're going to be on the roster or they're probably going to be on injured reserve. These are the guys that Packer, the Packers have committed to keeping around. You've also got good bets. And these are the guys that I think have around a 75% chance at being on the roster. You've got toss-ups as well, about a 50-50 shot, and then doubtful guys that are, are long shots, no chance at getting on the roster. But really, to look at who's really got a shot here, I want to look at the the locks and the good bets. On offense, I think there's about 14 players who've got their roster spots locked up already. At quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, obviously. Running backs, I think Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams are as good as in. You would probably agree there too. Jamal Williams is certainly behind Aaron Jones, but I think there's a good chance he ends up on the roster. At wide receiver, I've got four guys locked in right now. Devontae Adams, Geronimo Allison, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Equinemius St. Brown. Unless something goes unusually wrong for Equinemius St. Brown, I think he's going to be on the roster. At tight end, Jimmy Graham's going to be back for sure. There's no sense in cutting him now. They already paid him a roster bonus earlier this week. He's in. Same with Mercedes Lewis. They didn't give him $500,000 guaranteed to cut him in August. On the offensive line, I think your five starters are locked in as well. David Bakhtiari, Lane Taylor, Corey Lindsley, Billy Turner, and Brian Bulaga. Not rocket science there, of course. When you get down to the good bets, I think there's some wiggle room here. But still, even so, I think things are pretty much nailed down here. I think there are eight good bets for the Packers on offense. At quarterback, I think it's going to be one of the two, Tim Boyle or Deshaun Kaiser. I wouldn't commit to either one of them being good bets on their own, but I think one of the two for sure gets in. I think Danny Vitale at fullback is also a pretty good bet. If you look at how Kyle Shanahan has used his fullbacks in the offense that he runs, both in Atlanta and now in San Francisco, there is room on the roster for a fullback who can do a wide variety of things, and Danny Vitale can, or at least he could in college. I think there's a good chance that he makes the roster. At wide receiver, I would probably take one of two, maybe both, of Jamon Moore and Jake Kumaro. I wouldn't qualify Trevor Davis as a good bet, but you never know. I wouldn't bet on him right now. Things are gonna. He's probably going to have to rely on injuries, so he's out for right now. At tight end, I don't think he's locked, but I would consider Robert Tanyan a good bet. Uh, I don't think that's a particular controver- particularly controversial opinion, although the Packers are going to be pretty low on blocking tight ends no matter who they draft this spring. On the offensive line, I think there are two good bets, Jason Spriggs and Alex Light. Seems like we've been saying this forever with Mr. Spriggs, but it's put up or shut up time, this time for real, because uh, it's a contract year. And if he's at least as good as he was last training camp, he'll probably be around. But if he's only that good, this will probably be the last time around. So really not too controversial there. I think there's probably some wiggle room for a couple other offensive linemen in there, but really, I don't think that's a super controversial position. And that shows you how much the Packers really believe that their issues on offense last year were not talent-related, they were coaching-related, which I think is a pretty big indictment of Mike McCarthy. Because you fire him midseason, then don't really change anything on offense. That's kind of weird. And look at the opportunities for change on this offense. Where where does where does the change really happen in the draft? 
a running back, sure, but you're not going to draft a running back early. Tight end, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Offensive line, yeah, maybe you draft one early if a guy, if it breaks your way or if your board kind of shakes out where there's a guy you want to pick, but you don't necessarily have to pick one early either. There's not a lot of opportunity for change there. From there, it's pretty much depth stuff. Defense is a little bit different. I think there are fewer locks on defense, but still, well, I guess let me let me check. Nope, same amount of locks on defense, 14 locks as well. This shouldn't be super surprising either. On the defensive line, I think you've got Kenny Clark, Mike Daniels, and Dean Lowry locked in for sure. At outside linebacker, a thin group, but still some pretty obvious locks. The Smiths, Preston and Zadarius, and Kyler Fackrell. Not super controversial there because there aren't any really many more outside linebackers there. At inside linebacker, not a lot of locks here either, but there, again, aren't that many linebackers on the roster. Blake Martinez and Oren Burks, I think, are the only locks right now. At cornerback, Jair Alexander, Kevin King, and Josh Jackson. Shouldn't be super controversial there. The, the, those are the Packers' top three cornerbacks. They need them, and for the purposes of this ec- exercise, I'm counting Tremont Williams as a safety, and he is one of two locks at safety, Tremont Williams and Adrian Amos. There are fewer good bets on defense, although I think there there are some pretty safe ones here, and I guess that only works out to, to 13 locks on defense, but still. Uh, I think you see what I'm saying there. It's pretty close to where the offense is. Defense, starting on the defensive line, I think Tyler Lancaster, Montrevious Adams, and Fidel Brown, you pick two of the three. Right now, it would probably be Lancaster and Brown. I think you could probably make a case for all three, but right now, I would say two of three. At outside linebacker, I don't think anybody other than the three we mentioned up top are really super great bets. Reggie Gilbert made the roster last year and then did nothing throughout basically the entire season. At inside linebacker, again, not a whole lot going on there. I think James Crawford is a good bet just because of how he performed on special teams last year. He would not be one of my my favorite good bets to make the roster, but I think he's right there. And at cornerback, again, a pretty thin list here. Uh, It shows you the depth the Packers need here, but Tony Brown is probably the only good bet of the guys the Packers have on the roster right now. Of the non-locks to make the roster, I think he is the lockiest non-lock. He's he's pretty much guaranteed a roster spot, I think, if he just does the Tony Brown things we know he can do. And then at safety, I would say Josh Jones and maybe Raven Green are good bets. Josh Jones, I'm probably still higher on than most, and maybe that's a blind spot for me, but I think the Packers still are going to be hard-pressed to move on uh, from a second-round pick just a a couple years later. So that brings the Packers to 18 or 19, depending on how you count, and a running total of about 41 players that are good good locks or good bets to make the roster so far. Digging down a little bit further, you can add in three specialists to the roster. You're going to need a kicker, you're going to need a punter, and you're going to need a long snapper. I don't care who they are. Maybe the Packers make a move and try to bring in some competition for Mason Crosby. Who knows? Things got a little bit weird with Justin Vogel, uh, heading out of town after a, a good season as a rookie, and then the Packers drafting um, J.K. Scott. But it, it, again, it, it doesn't really matter. Who cares? We know there's going to be three specialists on the roster. You just need three, and they'll figure it out. But those are three roster spots that are accounted for. Whoever they are, you know you're going to need three. So it's not really a matter of 
competition there. It's not like you're going to keep, uh, you know, go, you're going to have this training camp competition. You're maybe going to keep two kickers this year. It's really not a thing. So I'm not really about, worried about who those players are. But just, you know, pencil and three in your mind. That brings you up to the mid-40s already. You throw in another couple guys here and there, guys like Raven Green, maybe another offensive lineman like Adam Pankey, one of those guard tackle types, and you're up to 46, maybe 47 if you add in another offensive or defensive lineman in there. That gets you pretty high up into the 40s. So why why do this? Why, why sort through these guys right now? Well, I guess it's all to make this point that as the Packers head into the draft, they may not looking to be they may not be looking to use all 10 of those draft picks that they have. I think this year more than most the Packers can afford to really lean into those top 4 or 5 picks, 3 4 picks that they have. Those top 100, top 75 picks, get those picks leveraged as much as you can. Maybe trade up, make them as high as you can. I don't think they trade up from 12, but maybe they trade up from 30 if there's a guy they really like. Maybe they trade back into the second round if there's a guy that they like there. They really should try to leverage those picks because there really aren't that many opportunities for rookies to get onto this roster. It also shows you, again, that the Packers really believe that their issues last year were coaching-related. Because the change isn't going to be that significant from year to year. The Packers did add some some significant parts through free agency on defense, but they didn't do much on offense at all. So they're really counting on Matt LaFleur to crank it up here, to help Aaron Rodgers be Aaron Rodgers, and to just get the offense working, get everybody on the same page again. This team is not going to change a lot between now and and the time we start playing games that matter. And it's important to keep that in mind, especially as the Packers head into the draft here. While I've got you here, I want to talk about one thing in particular in the draft. Let's think about tight ends. I think we need to think critically about taking a tight end high in the draft. Look at the landscape of the tight end position throughout the NFL. I think you could make a case that tight end is one of the spots in the NFL where there is the least, the lowest amount of elite talent. Who are the really elite tight ends in the league? In some order, it's Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, George Kittle, and a couple other guys. Not a lot, though. And I think there's a bigger difference between those top three, four, or five tight ends and the rest of the good-ish tight ends in the league. Why does that matter? That matter because that matters because if you're going to take a tight end early in the draft, especially if you talk about tight, taking a tight end at 12, you really have to think he's going to be in that elite group. It's not just enough to get a starting caliber tight end if you're talking about taking a guy at 12th overall. This is a place where you need to be thinking about getting an elite, probably Pro Bowl level talent at the position. And I'm not sure that with his background, from the tree that he comes from, that Brian Gutekunst is the kind of guy who's going to roll the dice at a tight end at 12th overall. It's become increasingly popular, I think, after the Packers made the moves that they did in free agency to think about the Packers maybe doing something a little unconventional like taking a tight end at 12. 
I think we should pump the brakes on that. And I think I'm probably as guilty of this as anybody because I floated that possibility after the Packers free agent spending spree last week. Let's be careful about that because there really would have to be somebody you thought had an opportunity to be elite, elite, elite at the top of the draft to justify taking that player there. Because between spending the 12th overall pick and committing to another 10 or $11 million of Jimmy Graham, that's a lot of resources spent at the tight end position for maybe not a lot of return when you talk about a 30-something-year-old veteran and a rookie. It seems like it might be a better idea for the Packers to go in a different direction, especially if they're not convinced they're really going to get one of those blue-chip prospects. Just something to think about. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to download one of our episodes. We are still looking for contributions for music for this episode and every episode as we look to play ourselves out of all of our episodes going forward here. Give us a shout if you are one of those people who are a great music producer or would like to connect us with someone you think would be a good fit for our show. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep things going, best way to support us is by leaving a review and rating on iTunes. That helps more people find the show. If you want to do some financial support, the best place to do that is on Patreon. Patreon.com slash ThePowerSweep. A buck a month helps us offset our hosting costs. And don't forget to check out the great t-shirts and sweatshirts we have in our store. Click the shop link at ThePowerSweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to reach out and say hi, drop us a note on Facebook or on Twitter or on ThePowerSweep.com or by email at ThePowerSweep1959 at gmail.com. Every bit of feedback, every question you ask, every thought you leave us helps us make this entire operation better and helps us all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.